Let us now turn once again in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6, and we will read together the first 29 verses, Mark's Gospel chapter 6. Let us now bow before our sovereign and glorious and victorious King. O Lord, our Lord, how thankful we are for the purpose and plan of the Trinity in eternity past to redeem us from our sins. When contemplated in our fallenness, we might have been left there, yet it was thine eternal plan, mysterious and strange to us, but how wonderful that we would be saved from our sins. And Heavenly Father, the message of the gospel and all of the word of God needs to be proclaimed in this fallen world and proclaimed clearly. We pray that those of us especially who have the obligation, responsibility, the privilege and calling of ministering the word of God publicly will be faithful to that calling. We pray that those of us who minister the word of God in this congregation will be faithful that the word would be blessed to the hearts and lives of the people of God and help the watchman to tell it true. That, Father, all of the truth that may come to a lost sinner will do him no good, but only further his damnation unless he believe and repent. And so we pray also that as the people of God continue to grow under the authority of the word proclaimed and read, that we, Heavenly Father, also will see the blessing of many, many, many people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. May there never be a service of worship here, if it is thy pleasure, that someone is not drawn out of darkness into light. And those of us who have been drawn into light, draw us deeper. Continue that wonderful, effectual call all the way to our heavenly home. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel. This is the Word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. 
And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, And the king said to the girl, ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, no one enjoys rejection. We certainly do not seek rejection. But here is something remarkable. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us, ministered to the needy, healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, preached the truth, eventually went to a cross. And we read in John chapter 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. The rejection of the Son of God binds all of these incidents together that we have read in Mark's gospel this morning. And behind this text, may we not discern Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Where do we fit in the rejection narratives that follow? And let us remember, it is a fundamental fact that Christ's church will share in Christ's rejection and reproach. And that is a large part of what this section is all about. Jesus said in John 15, 18 to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And so we have a very serious theme before us in this text, do we not? And the first thing that we see as we come to this is Christ rejected, Christ rejected. And there's more here than meets the eye. These take in verses 1 through 6, in which Jesus is preaching and teaching and performing miracles in his hometown of Nazareth, but also in the environs around it. And from Luke chapter 4, we know that his text that he took in the synagogue was Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a. Mark does not dwell on this. But in any case, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. All the way back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we are told that he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And let me remind you that this means that the saving rule of God has broken into this world in the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the signs of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel and miracle and casting out demons and the forgiveness of sins. And the kingdom is not identifiable with any political entity or any earthly state. Our entry into the kingdom also has nothing to do with any work that we perform God's entrance into this world in the person and work of Jesus Christ tells us that it's not by any merit that we have done. It is not by any good works that we perform, but only we enter through faith in Christ, who alone has merited the salvation of sinners. Do you know that and do you understand that? And this he preached in Nazareth and elsewhere as he preached. Now, in Nazareth, they're amazed at his teaching and impressed with his wisdom and impressed with his miracles on one level. However, their superficial familiarity with Jesus here in his hometown hindered their belief. And in verse 3, literally, it says that Jesus scandalized them. He was a scandal. He was, he was an obstruction in their way. What possibly could a hometown carpenter know about God and about his word? And they did not even act on the light that they received and on what they could see in his work right there before their eyes. And so there's this aphorism that the Lord Jesus uses there in verse 4 that basically the hometown boy is not going to be accepted. He has to go elsewhere in order to minister and to be accepted. And as always, the key to the kingdom of God is faith. So in verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. This, of course, does not mean that he did not have the sovereign, omnipotent power to heal or to do whatever miracle that he wished to perform. It means that they did not believe in him. They did not receive his ministry in faith. And so he did not perform miracles there. Now, relevant this is to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ all through history, but as history progressive, perhaps even more 
relevant today as there are more Christian martyrs in the 20th and going into this 21st century than perhaps all of the other centuries put together in the life of the church. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men. John 1, he came into his own and his own received him not. Rejection is common to our Lord who saved us and to us, his people, who are saved. Now just count on it, people of God. Our theology is a theology of grace. Our theology is a theology of the cross, of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is opposed to any human merit or contribution from man. And this is a scandal to fallen humanity that if they think they need salvation of any kind, want to produce it themselves or certainly have a large part in it. This is particularly offensive to modern man. And God reveals himself through what the world considers to be the weak and the foolish and the ignoble thing. Remember what Paul the Apostle says there in 1 Corinthians 126 uh, through chapter 2 about verse 5, that it's those things that are foolish that God has used to confound the wise. And that is why the health and wealth gospel is not the gospel of Christ and is a false gospel, because being a Christian will always involve daily death. It will involve loss of self. It will involve exaltation of Christ, lifting him high. And often it will involve suffering at the hands of men, rejected in his preaching, rejected in his hometown, rejected as the crucified one eventually as we move on in Mark's gospel we will see and we esteemed him not says Isaiah 53 men will not naturally admit their sin oh they'll talk about themselves as sinners but they have no clue as to what it really means that original sin has bound them from birth and that they are fallen in Adam and that they can do nothing to redeem themselves or help themselves I say it again that men will not naturally admit their sin and they will not naturally admit that they need the savior of sinners it was true then it is true now And how is it with you? Have you, by the grace of God, acknowledged that you are a sinner, that you are helpless and that you are hopeless, that there is only one Redeemer, and that Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Christ as your Redeemer from sin? And so we see that Christ is rejected. We will move on in Mark's gospel and we will see the rejection grow and we will see men nail him to a cross. And then secondly, we see Christ rejected in his messengers. And this takes about 6b through 13, in which he sent out his apostles in pairs with preaching authority and authority over the demonic realm. And they were delegates of Christ's work and delegates of his power. And their message was Jesus' message. That same message, again, that we read in the opening verses in chapter 1, verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. This is what they preached. And so there's continuity with us today in this, isn't there? 
There is the message of the kingdom that we are called to believe and to proclaim. There is the service of the word and this urgent matter of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a call for total dedication. And there's a connection with us also in this great theme of acceptance by faith and rejection of the Savior, his message, and of the messengers. And so in verse 11 of chapter 6, the Lord Jesus tells them to anticipate that there will be rejection. And if in any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now what does that mean? Well, pious Jews, when they had been into some heathen land, when they came back into the land of promise, would shake the dust off their feet that they had picked up in some heathen realm as they re-entered Jewish territory. So the twelve declared that the place that rejects the gospel, that home, those people, that town, wherever it may be, when they reject the gospel, they also shake the dust from their feet, declaring them to be heathen. And they do so, the text tells us, they are to do so as a testimony, which very possibly means a testimony at the last day, that there will be those who have heard the Lord Jesus Christ, who on that day will say, I saw all of this, I heard his gracious words, and I rejected him. Or I saw the apostles' miracles that were confirmatory that the church was being established, and I rejected all that they preached and all that they said, all the way to today, to someone who may be sitting here, who hears the message week after week after week of the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation full and free through him, but you are, you are untouched by it. And on that day as a testimony, this message that they preached that was rejected will be brought up, and someone will say, I heard that preacher of the gospel, and I rejected the only message that would have kept me out of my torment. What William Hendrickson says about this verse is still applicable to us when he said a colossal responsibility. Listen to the word, a colossal responsibility, a heavy load of guilt rests on such a place. Or shall we say a colossal responsibility rests upon you if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 10, 15, Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, that town that had rejected him and did not believe. And so they went forth two by two, and they preached that men should be converted, literally that they should repent. And Mark knew that this had continued relevance for the church that was persecuted in his day. Now remember, it is very probable most who study Mark's gospel in depth have come to the conclusion for various reasons, historical uh, data and so forth, that what is happening here is being, what is written here was written during the time of the Neronian persecution of Christians, which was unbelievably horrible. And it was relevant as they read this about the rejection to the church in his day. But people of God, it's also relevant to us in our day. 
because we as a church represent Christ and his message to the world and how we preach and teach and live and the servant is not greater than his master. And isn't this also some of what we mean when we speak of the apostolicity of the church? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets upon the authority of the word of God, in other words. And that word is despised by the world, and yet we are bold to say, we are taking that word, though you despise it, and we are bringing it to you, and we are preaching it to you because it's your only hope. You can know nothing of who God is, of who man is, about sin or grace or salvation or deliverance or the future or eternal life or eternal hell if you do not hear this word, this apostolic word. And we say to them, you must give up your autonomy. You must repent and you must bow the knee in faith to Jesus Christ. And again, this is not a message that the world likes. And in some places, then it was true, it is true now, in some places in the world, there are those who are given over to imprisonment and even to death because this word they know is the only word that will help anyone and they continue to proclaim it. Now for us, presently in our society and in our culture, presently we may bear ostracism, exclusion, being accused of being unloving, standing alone. A nurse may lose her job, or a businessman who refuses to be unethical may lose his prestige or his mobility, but God alone must be worshiped. And we know what is true, and we may not, we cannot, we simply cannot compromise that truth. We must take that message to needy sinners around us, and we must live consistently, increasingly so, with it. Now here's what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. But I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household." Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christ of the Bible is very different than the Jesus of the popular mentality. What earthly hopes... Think of this, what earthly hopes must have been dashed in the lives of some of these early Christians during the persecution under Nero, or later Decius, or later in the Protestant Reformation, or what earthly hopes were dashed. But though they were dashed, there was an eternal hope that held them in good stead through it all. In 1685, when Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, gathering like we are doing as a Reformed congregation this morning, worshiping the living and true God was forbidden. And for men, when men were caught gathering in those churches, conventicles, synods, to worship the living and true God, they were sent to be galley slaves 
to row, not for one year, two, or even ten, but until they died. That was the requirement because Reformed worship was criminalized in France. And men caught worshiping were sent to the galley slaves, and they were chained to these rowing benches, and that's where they would remain until they could row no more. Now, Edmund P. Clowney went to visit, and I remember reading this in something of Dr. Clowney's, but also remember, I remember somewhere his saying it, that he went to the museum in the south of France, the Museum of the Desert, called the Desert because the desert synods had to meet uh, in this uh, period of, of desert life for the church there in France. The, it was a, it's a, it's a, a museum given over to uh, Huguenot themes in the south of France. And there I remember his saying that he saw one of the great um, uh, oars that would have been used, maybe, maybe a replica, I don't know, of the, of the oars that would have been used on the, um, on the galleys. And underneath there was a, a model of the galley, the kind of galley that the, the Reformed Christians would have rowed upon to, to, um, to fulfill the, the legal requirement of having broken the law of worshiping God according to the Reformed faith. And there also he saw words beside the galley model of a reformed Christian man. And the words were, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. And ever since I've heard that, I have wondered in my heart, if I were sent to the galley for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, would I say these chains are delightful in the sense that they are the chains of Christ's love? I hope I would. I know God gives grace in the time of need, but standing for Jesus, suffering for Christ in this way, maybe, maybe, even now in some part of the world, maybe even in our lives in various ways, we are called to present to the world the significance of what Paul calls things that are unseen and eternal. Because we're actually saying to the world that we have a greater hope that has taken hold of us than that false kind of hope that we had when we were lost men and women. Uh, when, we, when we grasp the things of this world that just fade away, we have a greater hope. We, we're, we, we have that which is true and which is stable, and we live out of uh, our acceptance with Christ by grace through faith. And, and we have this view of eternity that is with us no matter what we experience, and this hope that is before us, and we live according to that, to that hope. We hang upon the promises of God. And if eternity grips us, we can live through any false accusation, we can live through any persecution. Indeed, if eternity grips us, we can live through any distress that comes into our lives by the glory of God that awaits us. Why? Because our hope is not here. It is in the world to come. That's how the rejection of the apostolic band also relates to us. The rejection of Christians who were persecuted under Nero when they read this, this is how it applies to us today. But then thirdly, we find another rejection. We've seen Christ rejected, Christ rejected in his apostles, but now Christ rejected in his forerunner. 
This is verses 14, takes in verses 14 through 29. The preaching of John the baptizer brought Jesus to Herod's attention. And he was disturbed by his guilty conscience because he feared that that John had risen from the dead and he had put him to death. And so Mark tells us how that happened. That Herodias, the wife of Antipas' half-brother Philip, uh, was in fact his niece, which was a forbidden marriage according to Leviticus chapter 18, but also that Herod drew her away from Philip and married her, and so he married his brother's wife, and this was contrary to the law of God, and John said so, and he said it plainly, and he said it uncompromisingly. But to satisfy his wife, Herod has John arrested, but Herodias wanted him dead. Look at those verses 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Someone has quoted uh, another author who said this, the worst forms of functional mental disorder arise from a repressed conscience. So you want to say, Herod, confess your sins. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. But no, rather than hear the words of John the Baptist pointing to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, rather than that, he followed the devil in skirts. His wife and her daughter. And Herodias has an opportune time because it's Herod's birthday and there's a banquet and the king was drunk and Salome, the daughter, danced in a lewd fashion undoubtedly in front of these men. And he said, oh, just ask me and I'll give you half my kingdom. What a foolish, foolish man he was. And so in verses 24 and 25, we read, and she went out and asked her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And she wanted it now. And Herod was deeply grieved, but he did it. And he suppressed his conscience because there was no fear of God before his eyes. And he would rather honor his twisted pride in front of those other men before before whom he had made an unbiblical promise. He He would rather honor his twisted pride. And so he had John executed and brought to Herodias was the head of John, this great godly minister, forerunner who pointed to Christ, his head on a silver platter. I'll never forget once hearing a preacher say that John was so faithful and he preached so much that when the head was cut off and he brought it on a platter, it continued to preach. Well, I don't know that that's the case, but it does continue to preach, doesn't it? Because we hear it right now in this text this morning. And this is what we mean when we speak of the antithesis. This is, in other words, the clash of kingdom against kingdom, of principle against principle. 
and we may not soften it. R.T. France says, Herod's wanton execution of Jesus' predecessor and associate is a sign of what the mission of the kingdom can expect from the kingdoms of this world. So here we have in microcosm what is going to happen with Christians until the Lord Jesus comes again. And Jesus interprets what happens there in Mark chapter 9 when he says this was Elijah that was to come and they did with him what they will. So rejection was essential to John's ministry and it is essential to our ministry and we will never be reconciled to this while we regard this world as our home and conform our hearts to this world system. Our present cultural task as believers can never properly be fulfilled when, when we fail to realize that this world is not our home. This world system, the unbelieving mind, is antichrist, and the antithesis is that sharp. And I would say beware of any, any views of common grace that you may come across that attempt to soften this antithesis. No, no, the principle against principle is always going to be there. And the choice for the church, and now I'm speaking to the church institutionally, who we are called to be as a body, and our local body, the choice for the church is between having a ministry of success in worldly terms or having a ministry that is significant in biblical terms. You can have a ministry that's a success in worldly terms, giving the world a message that it likes, toning down the grace alone message of the Protestant Reformation or the call to obedience or appealing to false notions of freedom of the will giving into cultural trends, which is happening in churches throughout the land, you can have a ministry of success in worldly terms. But we're not called to that. We are called to a ministry of biblical significance. There was a well-known TV preacher who was being interviewed on a radio talk show, and I wrote this down. Uh, he was asked about preaching self-love over against Paul's preaching that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. And this well-known TV preacher said, I hope you don't preach that. And that is to say what Paul said, I hope you don't preach that. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it should be preached. So such views of the church make it a business with customer satisfaction as the goal. So what is it that you seek in the depths of your heart for yourselves, for your children? Do you seek the world's values or kingdom values? You, you cannot ultimately be responsible for how your children turn out. Only God's grace can save a soul and change a heart, but we can be responsible for what they are taught. We are responsible for what we teach them. Do we teach our children that God's way is directly contrary to the doctrine and ethics chosen by the world? Or the path is narrow, and few there be that find it, as Jesus said in Matthew 7. Do we teach them what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? So you will need sure ground under your feet as you go through this world, and certainty is only obtained by beginning and ending with Holy Scripture.
applied to all of life. So let me bring this to a conclusion, a long conclusion. Um, Jesus despised and rejected of men. Jesus despised and rejected in his apostles' preaching. Jesus despised and rejected in John the baptizer's preaching. Jesus despised and rejected in the message that you may take to friends, neighbors, co-workers, or even the life that you live may be a conviction to their soul. But Jesus despised and rejected of men, let me first of all say, he is the only one. This rejected Savior is the only one. If you're lost and undone, he is the only one that can save you from your sins. Humble yourselves. Bring yourself to him. Ask him to redeem you, save you, deliver you from your sins. But people of God, understand that for those who believe for the faithful church, we cling to and proclaim the gospel that is a scandal to the world. When the church tries to make the gospel attractive by worldly standards, she compromises her Lord and we are no longer with him as the one who is despised and rejected of men. The first promise of the gospel all the way back in Genesis 3.15 tells us that the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man will be a relationship of hatred, enmity, antithesis. They will be antagonistic one to another. J. Gresham Machen said that the early church was radically doctrinal, radically intolerant, and radically ethical. Now think with me about that last point for a moment. Radically ethical. The Lord uses how we live to convict the world and to give opportunity to tell the truth about Christ and to teach hearts that may be opened by the Holy Spirit. Dr. Um, Joachim Dauma, who was um, a modern reformed ethicist in the Netherlands, wrote 14, 15 volumes on ethics, never been translated into English. You can get his book on the Ten Commandments in English. He wrote numbers of commentaries. He was a very sound, reformed scholar. Dalma said, whoever is seized by the gospel of Christ will also bring that to expression in his life, in actions which distinguish him from non-Christians. And he likens the Christian to recognizing a Rembrandt. You recognize a Rembrandt because it has a certain style, if you will or recognizing a Gothic cathedral because there are certain components to it that tell you this is Gothic architecture. So with the Christian, there is a style, if you will. There are certain characteristics. There are things that show that you are a Christian. Now, these are not things that make you a Christian. These are things that simply flow from your life as a Christian, and he lists a few of them. Let me just kind of paraphrase. A Christian shows thankfulness in honoring the Lord's Day. He's consistent in worship and prayer, before meals, even in public. He does not use God's name in vain. His language is full of mercy and goodness, is pure and not foul. Um, his possessions are not on the top of the list. He might even be willing to give up everything and go to a labor camp because he will not, he will not deny Christ. And he does good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. Uh, a Christian sees marriage and sexuality as God's good gifts to be used within the boundaries prescribed in God's Word. 
Uh, he will be a person who rejects ab abortion, or what we call now the culture of death. Um, he's a man, a woman, a child, who because he is converted, not to be converted, because he is converted, now loves the law of God. These things, again, do not justify, they do not make you Christians. These things develop and grow in true Christian character. And so there's a, a reverence toward God and a love for truth and a bold humility that characterizes the Christian's life, and it should be seen with those with whom we work and labor. And when the church and the Christian are focused upon the gospel, we are in our weakness, what the world considers weakness, when we are that, we're powerful. But when the church is focused on power and being an agent of culture, concerned with influence and manipulation, then the church is weak. Because the true church is outwardly insignificant, but is the chief place of the history of redemption. And so what is the call that comes to us? Christ rejected, rejected also in his followers who live for him and proclaim his truth. What is the call? Well, the call is to recognize that we are the church militant. The call is a call to faithfulness. And young people, let me especially speak to you, you that are in high school, you that are in college, you that have graduated, um, maybe have gone through courses and you're you're, you're in various lines of employment. Let me just say to you especially, because I think the onslaught, onslaught of our culture is particularly focused on children and young people and young adults. Let me just say, let the Word encourage you today to be faithful as a Christian, not to toy with the faith, not to be on and off, lukewarm, uh, the call is to plotting, faithful perseverance in a faithful Reformed church where true doctrine is preached, where God-centered worship happens and life is taken seriously as life in Christ. And let it show when you are with your peers and let it show when you are alone. Don't let your mind be blown by every wind of doctrine. Now is the time to learn how to be faithful and to take your stand. I like to quote German historian Karl Hall, who was no Calvinist, but he made the statement that the Calvinist is one who knows what he believes and why he believes it. Now, that's true. You just read church history. The Calvinist is one who knows what he believes and why he believes it. And that should be every Christian young person's goal. And you have innumerable opportunities in this congregation to grow in your understanding of the truth and your love for the truth. And I say you love for the truth because do you know what is the root of spiritual apostasy? The root of spiritual apostasy is not failing to know the truth. The root of spiritual apostasy is knowing on one level the truth. The root of spiritual apostasy is not loving the truth. Do you love the truth? 
And so the battle is fierce, it's heating up, in the latter days perilous times will come, we, we face cosmic darkness, the harbingers are here. So you say, Pastor, all this seems so, so very fearful to me. Well, don't fear, that's not the point. Don't fear any more than did the apostles or did, the, did John the Baptist or the martyrs through history, don't fear. I was reading something in Professor David Engelsma the other day about the scriptural teaching about the Great Tribulation and so forth, and he mentions this. I'm paraphrasing him. Reformed Christians, he says, march onward to the fray in which we must fight, singing the militant psalms, armed with the sword of the truth, protected by the armor of faith and hope, and led by the captain of our salvation. We will hardly dare to believe that God has counted us worthy of such a privilege. That should be our attitude when we are ostracized or persecuted or put down in any way by our culture. So we belong to the one who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we will be despised and rejected too. Be faithful, be faithful. We suffer now, but we will sing the Te Deum on the great day when Jesus comes again. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Amen and amen.